This episode of the Henry's Uncle podcast is brought to you by donations from our generous supporters. If you love the Henry's Uncle podcast and want to support us and our nonprofit, please go to henrysuncle.org and click the donate button and or give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. Thank you for your continued support. Hey everyone, welcome back. We're talking with Kelsey Morea today. Kelsey is the founder of her awesome company, Dope, which makes delicious edible cookie dough. She's also a Forbes 30 under 30, but most importantly, she is a person in long-term recovery from alcohol. Listen to her inspiring story. So I am super, super excited today. We get to talk to Kelsey, and I I hope I pronounced her last name right, Morea? It's Morea. But I won't. Oh, uh, geez. Yeah, I won't be mad at you for that. It's okay. I, I said I, for the first couple of years. So. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I can't do the uh, the tongue roll there. <laughs> yeah. I married a Brazilian, so I got the last name to come oh. along with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm really super excited. So uh, how this whole thing really started was like um, a year or two ago, my wife saw dope online, probably one of the ads or an you know article or whatever bought some. And then she's like, Hey, Eric, check out her, her website. You know, she's a person in long-term recovery. She started this business. She was on shark tank, yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, this is so cool that, that you're so willing to put yourself out there in terms of, of being in recovery. People who are in long-term recovery, it's, it's interesting because everyone's so different in their recovery, first of all. And, you know, some people just don't really want to talk about it and some do. And I love how just open you were about your recovery on your website on dope. Um, and that was really cool. It's awesome to see that's such a, it really breaks the barriers down in terms of mental health and substance use and all that. So, yeah, it's like you said, that it's very different for everybody. Everyone goes on their own unique path and like what works for them works for them. And I think when I was first sober, you know, I'm like mid twenties feeling like I'm literally the only person going through this. So for me, it feels like recovering out loud, you know, as you might say, like, feels like this chance to show other people who may be where I was five years ago, realize, oh, like, I'm like her, I could be like that, you know, I can, I can change my life too. So I feel this like, kind of responsibility to like, come out and just keep sharing it and keep sharing what's possible when you can like, really take acknowledgement of like how you're feeling in your life and why you're using certain things. And you know, it's all this mental health discussion, like you mentioned, really taking a step back to go, why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? And like, what am I using or doing in my life that I don't want to do anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you talk about like how you thought you like you were kind of the the only one out there, right? In your mid twenties, I had that exact same experience when I started um, experiencing anxiety when I was twenty five, because I never had it in my life, or I'm sure I have, but never to the extent of every single day having panic attacks out of nowhere. And I was like, oh my, you know, you feel like kind of like a freak or whatever it is, and and you're just not normal anymore. And and then you start talking to everyone and like, I've experienced that. I've experienced that. And it's like, oh, this is, you know, <laughs> people have gone through all this before. So yeah, it's kind of, I look at it like you open this little door, you know, like you open the door to let somebody else say like, Hey, me too. Or like, Hey, my daughter as well, or Hey, my wife or my grandmother or whatever it is. You know, there's like the six degrees of separation thing with recovery and mental health struggles is like literally one degree. You know, It's never, never that far for somebody to say like, you know, an opportunity for them to share what they may otherwise not really often get to talk about. So um, I have conversations with like, you know, vendors for dope that would never probably share these things with, you know, a client. And then because of how open I am, like they feel compelled, like there's an opportunity to be able to share what's going on in their life. And I think that's really special. So 
And it's such like a, oh, I don't want to say easy way to, to open it up, but it gives someone just that opportunity because for them to be able to talk about it, it could be their first time talking about it to, you know, to, to you and someone maybe you just met. And again, it's, it's something they can relate to. So one of the things I love that to start off with really is talking, you know, about not just about you, but your family growing up and, and what that was like. Cause so far it's like a 50, 50 of like, you know, s- sometimes, you know, families, Hey, we're good. You know, we grew up and I just became, you know, got hooked on alcohol or drugs or whatever. And sometimes there was a divorce or whatever, just to kind of see, was there something in the childhood that you maybe saw early on or you see now that could have caused it? But yeah, so I just would love to, for you to kind of just talk about your childhood and your family growing up and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah. So I was um, born in Dallas, Texas. I've got family that loves food and loves getting together. And like, you know, I definitely had, um, from my life that I remember, you know, the growing up years, I have a lot of positive memories, but there's, you know, also some negative. And I think this overarching thing that I've come to find out after getting into recovery myself was like this troubles with alcohol were widespread, you know, throughout my family on both sides. So my parents did get divorced when I was six, um, six years old. And I say like the childhood that I remember because from, I think they even married their new partners, like when I was seven or eight, you know, so it wasn't very oh, long. Wow. We found the ones that they are still with today, you know, 19 years later or something, 19 years of marriage later for, for them. And, you know, they've been happily remarried with these partners, but I think growing up feeling like, you know, some troubles that my mom had with alcohol, she's four years sober now. So I got a beat by one year, <laughs> no <competition. laughs> but you know, it was something I had a hard time recognizing as a kid. You know, it was just like, that's just mom's routine. You know, she gets home from work and she grabs the bottle of whiskey and, and she sits down on the couch and has her drinks, you know, and that was just what it is. And she was very hyper-focused in work life and in getting her master's and, you know, doing all, all those steps. And I think for, can't speak for my brother, but you know, for, for us growing up, it felt a little like she was choosing other stuff besides us at times. And I think that my leaning into alcohol at a younger age was both in part a lot, which I can talk about kind of like the anxiety and perfectionism issues I had and all this, but all of which seemed like my need for attention, you know, like I was striving for attention and acting out to like get attention. You know, you don't think when you're doing it that you want to get caught, but it's sort of in hindsight, looking back feels like some cries for help, you know, of like wanting to have everyone worry about me and have everyone have to come take care of me. So when I started drinking, it was like 14 years old. I think I, I drank for the first time when I blacked out the very first time I drank. And I remember just thinking it was like this release, you know, you didn't have to be on, I didn't have to be like so perfect. And it was just, I didn't have to think, you know? And uh, yeah, I think that I had had this just really intense, just intense personality my whole life. Everything was really intense. Like when I was a babysitter and I was 12 years old, I had like a pamphlet that said why I was the best babysitter in town. And I used to go hand out, (laughs) had paper business cards and everything. And like, I was just always next level. Like I would cry when I got a B in school. It was, um, it was real like intense anxiety about performance, you know, like how I was performing and personally like letting myself down that I had failed if I didn't get top notch, you know? Sure. Was that just you or did your parents push you to have that kind of perfection or is that just, just you? That's part of your personality. I thought a lot about this being like, was it them? Like, were they always telling me this? But really like they would be the ones like, take it easy. It's okay. Like, you know, you don't have to be so hard on yourself. It was really this like internal angst and anxiety that I put on myself to overperform. You know, my parents always said like, 
you need to do good in school. You need to go to good job. You need to go to like college and all those steps. Definitely. My mom is like, like I mentioned a workhorse, like she's incredible in business. And so I had this, this figure to look up to of like, this is what mom does. So, um, yeah, I think I wanted to be the best. I no fault of theirs. I just really always felt like I needed to be number one. It's interesting you talk about you know, like your mom coming home from work and and you know grabbing the bottle of whiskey and having a few drinks, you know especially during this pandemic like and especially on social media you see just how normal that is in terms of people like all of a sudden when the pandemic hit last year it was like okay day drinking's on you know twelve p.m. or you know it's five o'clock somewhere and it's like seven a.m. and I'm like going oh my god and like from everyone you know it doesn't matter your friend or a celebrity, whatever, it's just like constant day drinking. And I'm like going, oh my God, this is insane. Like, and you know, a lot of it, of course, is people joking and being home with kids and all that. And of course, yes, there's stress, but just the normalization of that was kind of uh, scary, especially that you see, I feel like I saw it's a, a statistic that this year, uh, this past year alone, there was what, over 93,000 or so deaths from, from alcohol. And of course, that's the lead, leading cause of addiction every year. You know, it's just, we got to be so much more mindful of that. Totally. I mean, like you mentioned with the pandemic thing, it's like, it all starts out as a joke. Sure. Like they're like, oh, I'm just having a drink at 7am. But then like, how many jokes does it take until it becomes a habitual thing? Like we are creatures of habit. And as much as people want to brush off that they don't have a problem with alcohol or it's fine. But like, how do you feel if you don't have your drink, like right after the workday is done or, you know, and as it started to creep up during the workday, but you know, there, there is some habit forming that like you may not realize you would be uncomfortable without that like your body is so used to going and having like two beers after work every day that without it you would want it you know and and is it bettering your life in any way you know I tried to start to look at like the way I was interacting with alcohol for one like my body just cannot handle it like I just I wasn't able to process it the way everyone else could And I wanted to still drink just as much as everyone else could. So those two things don't go very well together. Um, I would still try and hang, um, but inevitably, you know, it would go bad. And it's really trying to understand like at what point, at what point is this adding any unique value to my life and how much better would I be without it? And so, you know, for me, like those years from when I first drank and then into, you know, I got this opportunity to start working at Intel when I was 16 years old and I was thrown from like, being a kid who already had terrible anxiety and perfectionism issues into corporate America. And like, I was leaving high school at 10 30 in the morning to go to my job at Intel and work till five. And I remember coming home and feeling just as tired as my parents, you know, at the end of the day, wanting to just kick back and, and kick my feet up. And, you know, that it had been a really hard journey going into corporate America and how intense that was. So alcohol through the years, you know, just kept being that release. Like there was nothing else exciting. I would just like be working And then, you know, be drinking on the weekends and even through in college, it just got particularly out of control. And when you talk about how like society views these things and what you see on Instagram or what people are talking about, it's like in those college years, you know, I would be getting straight A's with 21 credits, you know, my first semester of freshman year, rushing for a sorority and blacking out. I mean, you know, with the exception of Monday, maybe every day of the week. I would have like one day where I wasn't. And that makes it really hard to say you have a problem, you know, to say that something is wrong because you've done a good job and like, look at your grades and, you know, all these things that you're doing, it, it made it so difficult to say, yes, but like, it's not normal to get hospitalized a couple of times for alcohol, to get tickets, you know, from police. I, 
lying to police officers with a fake ID and all this stuff and just things you would just never do otherwise. So when that really didn't stop after college, I just was forced, like hit a brick wall and forced to kind of come to Jesus that like, this was not going to work for me. And I was tired of trying all the different variations of like, well, I'll have water after every other drink or I'll only drink, you know, wine on Tuesdays, and like tequila. On Tuesdays. <laughs> so you're like, come up with all these little puzzles and jigsaws, of like how you're going to make it work. And at the end of it, you know, it was just like, this is not going to work for me. And, um, yeah, I had to make the decision to, to totally give up drinking. And this was a business trip in Barcelona. It was my last hurrah, if you will. And I had, you know, started drinking around 1030 in the morning, came to at 3.30 in the morning in a stranger's apartment in Barcelona by myself, no clue where I was, none of my belongings with me, you know, and had blown up a relationship of four years at the time that evening. So it was really clear that next morning that like, this isn't a college thing. This isn't a, you know, maybe I can get better. I've tried all these different routes. Like it's the end for me and alcohol. And I just knew that I needed to stop. So I called my Nana that morning who had like 20 years sober at the time. And it's my dad's mother. And, um, yeah, she was like, sounds like you need to find an AA meeting, you know, <laughs> like I'm glad <laughs> this phone call. Cause like for a long time, she had written me letters during college, you know, all the, scary- oh, really? yeah. I mean, you know, like I mentioned that, like getting everyone to worry about me in college, it was literally like every other weekend was like an, Oh shit. Like, is it the police that are going to call? Is Kelsey going to call? Is she going to call from a friend's phone? Cause she lost hers. Is the you know hospital going to call? Like, what's going to happen. Like they just lived those four years, like on edge, trying to wait and see what the next event was, you know, that, that Kelsey had caused. And so, yeah, I got a few choice letters from Nana during those years. And I remember like having a really hard time reading them because it's hard to like face the music that like you might have a problem. And it's like, I don't, it won't happen again. You know, you just brush it off that I got it under control. You know, that was just a bad night and it's not going to happen again. And then that happened about 37 times. And then I was like, finally enough's enough. And, you know, I didn't want to keep digging to see how far I could go. Wow. That's crazy. So you mentioned you started drinking around 14 and, you know, just probably high school party or whatever it may be. And then that kind of escalated. Then, then you took on high school and then also was it a full-time job or just like an internship with, with Intel? Part-time through every school year and then full-time every summer. Okay. So, (laughs) so you're going to high school job, college job, and that's a lot of stress. Um, and you, like you mentioned, like you were taking 21 credits, getting straight A's, then you got a job on top of that, trying to perform there. Trying to be cool, trying to join a sorority because I thought that's what was hip. You know, it was like in the part thing, like you think you need to be the cool girl that can do the longest keg stand because like that's what's in the movies, you know? And <laughs> it's like I really had all these like twisted things from what we see, honestly, in like Hollywood and TV shows. Like I remember watching, there's some sitcom called like Greek or something. And I was like, this is the epitome of like the college experience and I need to be like this, you know, but such a dichotomy with like how much I enjoyed learning and like how much I enjoyed my time at Intel and what I was learning there. And it just was a weird balance, you know, and I struggled to, to try and do it all. Before we go into the job, but did anybody in college, like any friends of yours have any concerns? Cause I mean, it's, it's a pretty normal thing, like really for like a Wednesday through Sunday to be drunk at nighttime. Like that's pretty normal in college. Um, if I saw, you know, I was, you know, I did that and there was no time, I'm, you know, looking back and just kind of thinking about it right now, like there's no time I would have said, oh, this person has a problem because majority of people were doing it. 
Yeah. In high school, I had a few um, friends, you know, approach that like had gone too far. And I lost a lot of friends um, during that time because the things you do when you act out when you're drunk, I was terribly angry when I would be really drunk, start fights with people, say really rude things I would never have said. I drove drunk when I was like 16 you know, after blowing up at everybody and then like, F you guys, I'm going to drive myself home like an idiot, you know, it just made no sense. So I had really blown up a lot of friendships. I think in college, I started to learn that while everybody else was also drinking these same nights, you know, cause I, that's the crowd I hung out in and that's the sorority and the fraternities and together, you start to see that like, there's a select few who don't hang quite as well, you know, like We'd go on a frat party that, you know, they had the date parties where you get all dressed up, go on a party bus out to this thing and comes back. I'm the only one who didn't get off the party bus because I was blacked out and passed out in the back of the bus, you know? So really, yeah, the police are the ones that found me. So, you know, just certain little things where you're like, yeah, everyone else had a good time, but like they all got off the bus, you know, they were still functioning like to move. I know everyone else was also drunk and everyone got crazy. But like I mentioned, like, I'm, you can't see me if you're listening to this, but I'm like five two, you know, 120 and pounding the same as a six foot, 300 pound frat guys. Like we're not going to have the same end result. So I was like on a rocket ship when I drink and then it would crash very, very quickly. The stories you tell, I, I wish um, one of our board members, he, he was, he's a recovering alcoholic as well of two years now. And I, I always love his insight because he talked to someone who's, who suffered the same, you know, addiction. Just, it definitely helps out. Um, it's interesting because him, you know, we roomed together for three years in college and I would have never in my life expected he would have had an alcohol problem. It, never. Yeah. It's crazy. Like my Intel colleagues were probably the most surprised when I came out that like I was going to be sober now and wasn't going to drink anymore. And, you know, they were like, was there a problem? You know, they didn't get it because they saw me at the sales conferences and like the big parties together where you know, we were all having a blast. And then, you know, they didn't have to see the bad side. They didn't have to take care of me afterwards as I was throwing up. Or, I mean, literally I was speaking at an event. It was a, a conference that Intel was doing in Las Vegas. And I got down the elevator. I don't even remember what time I had gotten back to the room, but I drank so much that I threw up in the bushes of the elevator lobby as I walked to go and present in the conference to get on stage. And I didn't have any water before I went up. I mean, and it was just like, I had a couple of those where like none of those people in the audience knew that I had just gotten so trashed the night before that I just vomited for this session. And yeah, it's crazy what you can like mask when you look like you've got it all together as long as the morning comes, you know? I did have one colleague, um, he knew me since I was 16, um, you know, was in the very first group when I joined Intel. And I think he's probably the only person, he actually sent me home one morning because he I reeked of alcohol and was probably still drunk from the, the party the night before. So that was Todd, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> he's uh, we're still friends. And he orders dope all the time. Um, like that, <laughs> it's really interesting. Like I remember feeling so ashamed. That was the first time I ever let it cross over into my work life where I must've been 18 or something at the time. And to have him say, you smell so badly of alcohol like i think you're still drunk you should head home you know so some of those were like whoa you know but then you just pass it off again it's like well it was just that night it was just that night whatever so yeah justify it yeah everybody else on the outside you know you're like your own little tornado and there's some people in your inner circle that are really getting pulled through it and then some people on the outside don't see it you know they don't really see that anything the sky's blue 
So, you know, you went through college, you know, you worked at Intel and then you got a full-time job afterwards at Intel. When you got, like you just mentioned, like when you got sober and, and your colleagues were were stunned, you're know, like, oh my gosh, we had no idea there was an issue. What was their reaction? You know, like, what, like when you're in corporate America and you're going through this, you know, first of all, you're trying to find recovery in corporate America, kind of walk through that journey. Cause I got to imagine it's pretty stressful because one, you're thinking about your job, but also you're thinking about your health and livelihood, you know, kind of walk us what that looked like. Yeah. I mean, so it was certainly uncomfortable to have to have these conversations and say, you know, I've got a problem with alcohol and I'm going to stop drinking. And I think, you know, so when I was in Barcelona, it's like day one of a seven day conference when I'm like, oh shit, this is the end for me. I need to stop drinking. And I still have seven days of a conference to go through in another country and all the dinners and things you're supposed to be a part of and everything for that, that week. So that was really challenging in itself. And I don't think I told my manager anything was going on during that time. They weren't at the conference with me, but, you know, remotely talking to them or anything. When I got back, I only had one week and then I was leaving on a volunteer trip in the Philippines. So Intel was doing this um, service core thing and it was going to be two weeks in the Philippines. So like my life was just insane during this period because I get back, you know, the relationship of four years has ended. We're having to split up our apartment and move separate ways. I'm like, you know, on the floor thinking my life is over, surrounded by all my stuff in boxes and and less than a few days, I got to go back. So I think when I got back from the Philippines, you know, it was really the like, okay, this is like my new life. And I did want to talk to my manager about it because I didn't want to have, you know, the happy hour kind of things and like getting together with the groups and stuff. And I just didn't want it to be uncomfortable that I'm not going to be partaking in any alcohol, you know, don't want any drinks. There's a lot of, what's the tavern up there? It's like they own everything in Oregon. McMinimins. Thank you. Yeah, McMinimins. Yep. So. You know, yep. going right out there and, by the campus. Yeah. And trying, you know, all the different beers they have and stuff. So I thought it was just, it was a no brainer to me that I wanted to tell my manager that I was going through this. My boyfriend at the time that had ended, you know, he also worked at Intel. So there was a little, like, I just need to tell them what's going on. Cause it's not going to be the same as it was. So yeah, I mean, and then they received it really well. I think there was the same kind of like, Oh, we didn't know sort of thing, but yeah, very supportive. I didn't get any backlash or anything like that. And then from that, you know, from this decision, I had some really amazing things happen with a past manager of mine and a, a director in a group I worked in who, you know, we had stayed in touch over all the years and everything. And then as I got sober, they too were inspired to sort of take a look at how they've been using alcohol in their lives. And our, I think he just hit like three years sober or something um, in November. So really cool to have them. You've inspired us. Like we're on, you know, 30 days or whatever. And, you know, thanks for sharing what your experience has been like and that it inspired them to get sober as well. So super cool. You just never know what people are going through. And I think in corporate America, you're like expected to like fit in this box, like everything's fine and perfect. And it was a huge realization for me that like, it's okay to not have it all be perfect. And more companies should, you know, be like Intel where I didn't face any retaliation. If anything, I got, you know, do you need some time off to reset and uh, very understanding of you know my situation and what I was going through. That's really cool. I can't imagine going through something like this, you know, a life really like a life crisis and trying to speak up and, you know, how is my manager going to take this? How is the company going to take this? So that's, that's wonderful to hear that they were very supportive and kind of gave you the space, you know, that you needed to, to get better. You know, in terms of alcohol recovery, what did that look like for you? You know, did you go to a detox center? What did that whole process look like? 
Yeah. So my first, I mean, day one was in Barcelona. So I found an English speaking AA meeting that morning. Oh, um, so you really did get start your journey right there in the Barcelona. Right there and then. Yeah. Wow. I still, still have the guy's phone number who led the chair of the meeting that day. So yeah, you know, I went and I was like, you just cannot believe that this is happening to you. You know, like you're going and you're like, I need to make this happen, but it just felt so out of body. You know, you're like, you see this in the movies, like, hi, I'm Kelsey and I'm alcoholic. Like, it really seemed like, holy shit, this is really like happening in my life. But, you know, when you talk about like the family stuff and generational things, it's like my Nana had taken a roadie on the way to the Betty Ford rehab center. You know, she's like, I'm going to have one last drink on my way in. And then she passed away with 21 years sober um, from there. So I was following a traveled road in my family, you know, to just take the step to go and get help. And yeah, and it was very isolating. You know, when I got back, like I mentioned, I'm in Barcelona. So I'm like, I went to the English speaking, English speaking meeting there, got into AA when I got back to Hillsborough, Oregon. And, you know, the median age in Hillsborough is not exactly like, <laughs> like San Francisco, maybe, you know, it's, it's a bit older. So at first I was like, what is wrong with me? You know, another like, wow, am I the only one going through this at this age? But I had incredible people in that room. And it was a a 6am meeting called day starters every single day. And, um, you know, I would go every morning and some of them though aged from me then, you know, they had gotten sober at the same age. So it was a neat experience to hear the, like, you know, a couple of them were like, I was exactly your age. And now I, you know, have a wife and two kids and like, life is just incredible, you know, stay on this path. That was a great reminder. And realization for me that like having examples of what life can be like, you know, someone else who, made the same choice as you at the same age. That was really uh, empowering. So I, I was in a, and you know, you just have a ton more time when you first get sober. So I was like baking like crazy. I lived in my kitchen, like nights and weekends. I was just constantly baking and making stuff, prepping, you know, different recipes, um, meal prepping food, bringing in all the desserts into the office and stuff. You know, a lot of the friends I had were all just drinking buddies, not tied with the relationship that had ended. So I was really feeling quite isolated. You know, my mom came up and stayed with me for a bit and helped me set up my new apartment and everything. And yeah, I remember just feeling like, like my Intel colleagues were like my, my only friends really at the time. Um, and that was okay for the time, you know, you got to, I really got to be like introspective and like, think about who Kelsey wants to be. I felt like I got to like erase the whiteboard and like draw a new me and figure out like, what are the things that I've been missing in my life? When I was drinking, it was just like, working and drinking and blah. Like there was nothing else you knew about what made Kelsey Kelsey. And then I was like trying pottery and like um, painting and cooking and, you know, all this stuff and really trying to figure out like what was going to be my thing. What, what do I like to do? You know, it was like, literally I had no hobbies. It was alcohol was my hobby. Testing breweries was my hobby. So it's, it was it's easy to do cool. up here in Oregon. Yeah. Right. It was just literally every weekend people come to visit and be like, Oh, we're going to go on this brewery tour, you know, do the little bike riding thing and like come check out these different bars. You got rogue and et cetera, et cetera. So it was, um, yeah, it was a lot. And I remember thinking like, what will I do? Like, how will I hang out with people? How am I ever going to get married without a champagne toast? Um, how am I going to go on a date without alcohol? How will I have sex without alcohol? You know, I I had not, with the exception of that boyfriend, ever slept with anyone without being drunk. And that was really crazy for me to realize. Sad a bit as well, but really crazy to think like, it's a whole new world now. I have to figure out how to like do me without alcohol. And like, 
I better find something interesting that I like. And, you know, luckily the time in the kitchen was absolutely that I really found my passions, um, baking again, like I had as a kid. Yeah. That's really cool. I mean, so here you are, you're, this is 2015 ish. I mean, just not, not that long ago. And, uh, you mentioned you leave Intel right around 2017 and you venture off and, you know, this is two years into sobriety and here you are venturing off into your own company, your startup, you know, probably right from where you found your passion of, of cooking or baking. And, you know, if you don't know, it's dope, D-O-U-G-H-P, amazing edible cookie dough, which everyone loves, I know. I've had a few of myself. <laughs> but, I mean, just two years in, how do you, what was your thought process going from corporate America to your own small business, starting your own small business just two years in sobriety? Yeah. You want to know what's crazier? I actually started my first small business before dope two months into sobriety. So I started Monster Baby Bakery when I was living in Oregon. Before moving down to San Francisco, Monster Baby is my family nickname for me because I'm such a messy eater. And so I had Monster Baby Bakery for all those, you know, like I mentioned, I've been baking stuff and bringing it into the office. And it was sort of this like, hey, you should sell this. Like this stuff is good. You know, these truffles and cupcakes. And I was making layer cakes for people's um, birthday parties and whatnot. (laughs) So I started Monster Baby Bakery out of my kitchen, like cottage food license, you know, to be able to do it from my home um, kitchen. And I was shipping. So I made a little website and an e-commerce thing and had my business cards again. So the, the branding component of it was really fun. I've always loved marketing. And that was sort of my first like, what's it like to pour yourself into building a brand? Like what's it going to look like, sound like, and taste like, and and all that went with creating monster babies. So had a ton of fun with that. And then it was the middle of 2016 that I got an opportunity to move down to Intel's office in San Francisco. And so I put the bakery on the side because I'm like, oh my God, San Francisco, I'll never stand out. Like I can't compete against the pastry chefs there. But when I got down there, you know, threw myself into work again. And it just wasn't long until like that entrepreneurial itch comes back where you're like, Oh, it was just so invigorating to create something that was my own, you know? And I had been baking vegan when I moved down to SF, but I was a really shitty vegan because I love butter. And so I had all of my recipes were like eggless, but had butter in them. So they're really decadent and delicious, but egg free. So you could eat the batters or the doughs safely. So cookie dough. I was like saving a bowl in the fridge to snack on through the week and then like baking a few cookies. So edible and bakeable. And I'm like, my God, everyone loves cookie dough. And we all eat it like one little spoonful at a time alone in our kitchen while no one's looking. Why can't we just like eat an entire pint of it? And um, so, yeah, I got that idea for dope. And I said to a friend, you know, I just want to make a really dope dessert company, like somewhere that is like where you and I would want to hang out. And she was like, dope could have dough in it. So dough with a P and we called it dope, um, making legit cookie dough. And I made a hundred pounds of dough, like carting ingredients over to Oakland to a commercial kitchen to make all the cookie dough, come back to San Francisco and uh, set up at Dolores Park. And we sold out in like three hours on day, which was my first day of sabbatical from Intel. I was getting 10 weeks off paid to go and see what I was going to do. Originally planning to travel the world. I had like a whole backpacking trip planned. Um, my dad and I were just reminiscing on that, that I had this total trip planned for my sabbatical. And then when the dope idea came, I'm like, I got to use these 10 weeks and see if this business can really be a thing. And four years later, it is most certainly a thing. Yeah. That's so cool. I, you know, you talked about, you know, earlier in the podcast, you talked about your anxiety and perfectionism. And when you're going, you know, from sobriety into, you know, creating your own business, this sounds like, and you mentioned you started, you know, your monster, what was it? Monster 
Monster Baby Bakery. NBD. Monster Baby Bakery. <laughs> I can't say that three times. Mm-hmm. Um, did that anxiety and perfectionism maybe not hinder you in this case, uh, especially just so early in sobriety because it was such a passion? You know, was it something so different that you've never experienced? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just channeled into something positive. I feel really excited about what I'm pouring myself into. I certainly still battle with, you know, perfectionism and anxiety and stress. Like none of that goes away, but being sober, I have much better tools to deal with it, you know? So I I really have like my little toolkit of things that I need to keep myself feeling steady and feeling um, as balanced as I can. And with entrepreneurship in the very beginning, you know, moving corporate America to, oh my gosh, I run my own thing. It was very challenging on like the schedule, the the loss of schedule that it was seven days of the week that I had at my disposal. And like, how was I going to use them? You know? And when you have that tendency to overwork and, and suffer from workaholism, like it's really a constant struggle to find out how you're going to chunk things out, how you're going to piece your time. You know, I started to make it where it's like, okay, I do accounting stuff on Mondays and I do marketing stuff on Tuesdays. And then within that, like, okay, I need to remember to eat lunch and like how I remember to stop and have dinner. And as I was dating and SF, my dad used to be like, okay, but how's your boyfriend? Have you checked in on him? You know, like, have you left your apartment today? Because I was just always just so in it with what I was doing with. So it is a challenge and it never, never really goes away. I just have new challenges now um, versus when I was scooping for an 800 person event or something. And now we're running a large uh, e-commerce brand and, and growing into retail. So new challenges and constant roller coaster. I'm reminding myself like when I'm in these tough times, like this week has literally been like 12 to 14 hours a day, every day. And it's a ebb and flow. And as long as you're not fighting the ebb, you know, it's okay. Just go with it. Like I, I think that we all have this power over our experience. And when you're resistant to your current experience, that's when it's unpleasant. But if you're accepting of it, and I know that a calmer period will come, it just is going to take this right now. Like that's okay. And honestly, it is a world of difference in my mental health to just feel a little like looser with it and not be like, Oh, white knuckling, like through the day is like, I wish I could just stop and relax. It's like, no, this is just like what it takes right now. And I'm like excited that I'm talking about cookie dough and sobriety all day long. What a gift. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I, I would love to say this as, as a fellow e-commerce person, I, I love um, your emails this week in relation to the ice storms and just because that wreaked havoc on like 65, 70% of America and so many e-commerce people out there or companies don't communicate ahead of time. And I don't know when it was. I think I've gotten two or three so far from Dope. Um, I don't have anything on order right now. I did a few weeks ago. That's already gone. After our second baby, I, I bought like a, a four pack of your five ounce pints and they were gone within like three days. Uh, it's just easy sitting there with the baby having some having some cookie dough. But I loved the over communication saying, hey, there's ice storms, our carriers, this is our route, this is we have to go through Memphis, et cetera, so on, and things are just backed up. And I love that. So I love the over-communication. It was so nice to see because not too often, you know, really not often at all, you get that kind of communication, personal touch from a company. So I know that was a little off topic, so I just wanted to say uh, I love the the over-communication right there uh, it's a big coming thing from a company. That. We're like always trying to be as communicative as we can, as authentic as we can. And like, you know, we have a whole thing with dope for hope around mental health and addiction recovery. And I feel like part of what we say is just always like keeping it real and like telling people what's really going on. And so there's no like hiding behind like, Oh, everything's fine. Like the orders are going to be perfect. 
perfectly, you know, on time. And it's like, there was a massive snowstorm in the FedEx's hub. Like, <laughs> of course, I want to come out and like make it all perfect, but I'd rather just be straight up about what's going on and that it's probably going to take a few days. But this was a lucky situation because our dough is fine in the cold weather. It's like this would be much more <laughs> than if it was in the middle of the summer because of like a heat storm or something. So your cookie dough sitting in a freezer for a few extra days, basically, that Memphis was is... Um, yeah, there could be worse things. So altogether, it was a manageable experience. And everything is if you communicate well enough. Exactly. And so I, what I really loved about your communication was, was after the, uh, I placed the order, I got, um, I know I got the confirmation email, and I think one more as well. But I mean, it was like a full on, like, I, you know, typically, when I just get a confirmation email, I just make sure, hey, okay, cool, it's the, it's the right order, it's the right thing I placed. But you kind of lay out your whole journey of like, hey, this is me. This is why I started dope and this is my sobriety. And I love that part because, again, it's like from the moment you step on the website to after you order, everything is like about just being open and honest and about your sobriety. And, hey, this is me. And that's so cool because I feel like if this was, quote unquote, you know, corporate, like that wouldn't fly. But I love that part of like, this is our brand. This is who we are. So that was really cool. Yeah, Dope for Hope has um, evolved since I started it. It was only like four months into the company that we created this initiative. And like you see now, it's like over time trying to make it more that like we're a company trying to break the stigma around mental health and addiction recovery. And we happen to sell cookie dough to do it. So it's like <laughs> leading with the mission and like that that's fueling, you know, the sale of cookie dough is just fueling our, our impact. So yeah, it was like my two-year sobriety anniversary we were opening our first like physical location for dope. It was going to be a kiosk on market street. And I put in the Facebook event for the grand opening. I said, if you come up and say it's dope to be sober, you'll get 20% off at checkout. And then my inbox was like flooded with these people being like, Hey, I'm two weeks sober. Like, do you know of any good meeting in the city? Or I'm 13 years sober and I've never told anyone. It's so cool to see that you're sharing this so openly. And I was like, oh my God, like what a conversation this needs to be. Like if just little old me running this little cookie dough company, sharing that I'm sober, gave somebody the comfort to like share that they're 13 years sober or like someone two weeks doesn't know who else to reach out to for advice on like good meetings here. It all seems too shrouded, you know, too in the dark and um, dope for hope is my way of saying like, let's put a megaphone on it and like, let's not stop talking about mental health and addiction recovery and you know, even if it saves one person, if it helps give one branch out to somebody, like our job is done. Um, we just had someone yesterday right, right out that, you know, one, she loves the cookie dough. So that was a big win. <laughs> <laughs> and two, that, you know, she was so impressed to see like my journey and like happy to read about that and that she's currently an addict and interested in getting sober. And would she recovers foundation be a good place to start? And I'm like, that's this so cool. <laughs> Incredible. You know, this is exactly why we're doing what we're doing. And she recovers as our beneficiary for 2021. So they receive a portion of every purchase. They help women that are in or seeking recovery. And um, it was just such a nice, like full circle thing there where you're like, this is why we're doing what we're doing. You know, this one message here of which we get, you know, variations of that over the year, people, you know, move by what we're doing. And it's, it's really nice. It's really important. That's really cool. That's an awesome story. And it just, you know, again, it just goes to show how, just being open and honest about yourself and, and what doors can open and who, who else you can help as well. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. So you mentioned when you first started dope, you took a hundred pounds of dough over to Oakland to a kitchen, brought it back. How many pounds of dough are you doing per year now? Oh my gosh, per year. Yeah. So um, 
It's pretty wild. And I think also in like dollar value, like I remember when we hit our first hundred thousand dollars had sold for the company. Now it's like, Oh my God, you know, <laughs> like, I couldn't believe it. but yeah, so we did a hundred pounds the first day we did 162,000 pounds in 2020. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. pretty remarkable. Yeah. And <laughs> so, I mean, so the pandemic hits and you know, you're, Again, like you mentioned, you have a lot of tools for your sobriety and stuff. Did, did, did those tools help you pivot when the pandemic hit? Because again, like I mean, I'm sure there's some really tough decisions you had to made, uh, make, especially around workers, because you did have retail stores and now you're fully online. What was that like? I mean, that's because it, it's, you know, it's a once in a century pandemic and you have to make these critical decisions. But it's as talking to you, you have a, you're a person with empathy and you want to make sure everyone around you is, is taken care of. So what was that like? Yeah, I mean, there were so many challenges with the pandemic. So my husband um, is joined the company in fall of 2019. So before we knew what was about to happen, um, but we had sat down, you know, planning for 2020 and strategizing that we really needed to make another channel large enough to help carry us so that we weren't so reliant on brick and mortar. It's literally like he had a, you know, fortune telling ball because like within a few months, we would absolutely need another channel to be carrying us. And we grew, you know, from... in sales online, sorry, $50,000 in sales online in all of 2019 to 2.5 million online in 2020. So our entire business was like 180. Yeah, it was crazy. So um, huge shift for us. Uh, And the fulfillment operations that had to happen to scale that in the middle of a pandemic with supply chain effects that were happening. I mean, hands down the most stressful year of my life with dope the entire duration and went through some really hard times. Like we had uh, made a poor decision in our fulfillment rollout in the beginning. I can't even express like the financial impact that that had, but emotionally, like, you know, I was having like panic attacks a couple times a week, like really having a hard time um, going through that, but very grateful. My husband is such a good like rock for me and support system and incredibly talented on the operations and finance side, which is not my strong suit. So we were able to make it through this. And then, you know, the human component of like, Hey, our retail stores, you know, are being forced to shutter for the three months of the quarantine. Uh, so that was very challenging having to say, like, we kept our store manager on salary throughout the shutdown, but we couldn't keep, you know, that um, part-time employees who had helped us for, you know, all this time. And it was really, really tough to see like the success of what was happening online. And while for a bit of the summer, we were able to still use our employees um, and have their help fulfilling the orders for online quickly outgrew our capacity to keep serving the online business. And so we had to outsource to fulfillment centers and co-packers um, to start producing and shipping. So it was like, oh, like things are going so well, but like we can't use our own staff anymore. So it was very bittersweet to like, you know, have, like you said, the empathetic side being like feeling so guilty that survivors like we're going to make it, but like now there's no job left here. And we were able to keep our store manager Iggy. So she's our recipe developer now with dope. So she still helps out and she's got a job at our fulfillment center too. So we found a way, you know, a way through it and uh, just kept our heads up. And, you know, like I've said with the whole journey with dope, it's like, there's no obstacles that can stop you. It's just new paths forward. And 2020, like constantly finding new paths forward. There was no straight line. <laughs> 2020. Yeah. I can only imagine that's, that's amazing. <laughs> Going from uh, 50,000 in sales in 2019 to 2.5 in 2020. That's, that's pretty remarkable, especially during a pandemic and everything that, you know, like you just mentioned went on. I mean, that's yeah. very remarkable. 
So I know we're coming up on top of the hour, but I want to mention, so I see in the background on your wall, you're going on six years sober here. You are a Forbes 30 under 30. You're on Shark Tank. You know, you have a weekly magazine article of yourself up there too. Like, I mean, this is remarkable and amazing what you can do just taking that first step to sobriety. Yeah, I really never thought this would have been possible. Everything that I've been able to build and it's all thanks to making the decision to stop drinking. You know, life is blurred with alcohol or whatever you're using to numb, right? Or to get away from the current circumstance. And like things are just blurry and time just flies by. It's like you're not really soaking up life. And I felt like getting alcohol out let me really realize all of my potential, you know, like I really unleashed all my potential and felt worth it. Like I really had this self-worth realization come through when I got sober that I really deserved to kick ass at life. And I deserve to, if I love dessert, I deserve to talk about dessert every single day. Like I <laughs> my cookie shaped mouse pad and I'm like photos of cookie dough this morning. And I talk about cookie dough all day. Like you deserve that, you know, you deserve whatever you love should be your life. And um, sobriety gave me the opportunity to recognize that and to go after it. So the accolades of making it on Shark Tank and Forbes and stuff, it's like, it's a testament to that anything is possible if you're doing what you're passionate about. You know, if you're doing something you love, the right energy and the right people and the right opportunities will come. Yeah, that's so amazing. And it's remarkable how just six years, I mean, that's just, it, it's, it really is amazing. And just a cookie dough business. And here you are and you're spreading not just joy and sweetness, you know, throughout the the US, you're also talking about mental health in a very open and honest way and, and helping others see that sobriety is incredible. So totally kicks ass for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kelsey, I really want to thank you for your time. I know how busy you are, especially in tw- you know, now we're in 2021, but all the challenges still remain. So I really want to thank you for your time. Keep doing what you're doing. I've told all my friends and everyone around here about dope and I'll continue doing it uh, to support you and your company and what you guys are doing. It's, it's truly remarkable. So awesome. Thank you very much. That's nice before, sorry, before you go, I forgot, where can they find dope? That's important. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you can find dope at dope.com and it's dough with a P on the end. We ship nationwide all over the U S and you can find us on Instagram at dope and we're on Facebook at dope. We're on TikTok and Twitter at eat dope. So check us out. Fun stuff happening and mental health Mondays on our Instagram account. So always a little dose of joy besides filling your feet with cookie dough. So (laughs) perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kelsey. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Henry Zunkel podcast. Please like subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to learn more about our nonprofit, please go to henryzunkel.org. As we say here at Henry Zunkel, you are loved, never judged.